0: Our main passage this morning is in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and the very first chapter will have our primary attention this morning. Now, we are taking up again a series that we began back in January, and we went through about seven sermons looking at a question, which is arguably one of the two greatest questions anybody can ask. The question is raised in Psalm 8, and it is, what is man? that thou art mindful of us. What does it mean to be a human? And sometimes it's referred to as biblical anthropology, the study of human nature. We have looked at a number of questions about that, a number of subjects, and I will acknowledge it has been one of the more intimidating series for me to prepare. Not because of the subject matter per se, but because every single topic is vast. You know, we've looked at questions about to be human, you know, what does that mean? It means to bear God's image. What does that mean? That could be a whole series of sermons and really in some ways that's what this series is. Or to be human is to have a distinct origin and a distinct purpose. We're made uniquely among all creatures. To be human is to be uh, a creature comprised of both body and soul. Well, that could go at great length. And each of these has been dealt with in one sermon. And the same is true for this morning, as we look more particularly at our calling or a portion of our calling as human beings, that in the beginning, God invested human beings with a kind of authority over creation. And so I acknowledge from the outset, this sermon cannot answer all the questions that we have, but Lord willing, what it does do is set that idea right where it belongs most, on Jesus Christ. How does that question relate to him? And then basically, how is the Lord calling us to live through Christ in light of that original calling? Of course, there's room for you to study further on this, but that's the basic idea that we're looking at. Now, look with me in the text, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Father in heaven, you have preserved your scriptures, inerrant, infallible, and able through your Holy Spirit to transform us from glory to glory through faith. We ask this morning that you would please soften our hearts to receive your message. Guard us from error. Please lead us into your truth, which is the only truth. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My wife and I have family back in Virginia. And that means that we have had a number of opportunities to visit Washington, D.C. And twice I have attempted to visit the White House. Twice it was not open for visitors at the time when we went there. I don't know what was going on, renovations something, we couldn't go. But I know that some of you have been there, and part of why I wanted to go was to see the very famous gardens on the premises. Imagine that you are visiting the White House. For a moment, just hold that in your mind. And for any very young children, this is where the president lives and carries out his work while he's occupying that highest office in the land. So it's very beautiful, exquisite gardens. And you are being led through them by a tour guide when you see one of your fellow visitors veer off the path and begin to tear up the roses and pulls from his or her pockets a package of seeds marked in large letters, noxious weeds. And is now planting these in the garden there. And then you see this person begins to pull together, you know, the the beginnings of a small hut and fills it with all kinds of trash, not just any trash, but something particularly toxic or poisonous. Of course, this is absurd. Who would ever do that? But now the security guard goes over and says, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What right do you have to be trashing this place, not only for yourself, but for others? This is going to have an effect on the other guests. Don't you realize that? Now, when I tell this story, of course, virtually everybody says, well, that's absurd. Nobody is so, you know, you'd have to be completely out of your mind to go onto the grounds of the White House, the palace of the people, and desecrate it like that. But then you bring it back to the fact that the being whom we call God, the intelligence and the power, the personal being who created all things and sustains them by the word of his power, he alone has an inherent right over all creatures. He alone has that right. As it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Meaning it belongs to him. Not you, not me. It's first of all his. Romans chapter 9 quotes Isaiah, where it says, Has not the potter power over the clay to do with it what he wills? You know, the guppy cannot raise a protest against the Lord that it doesn't have teeth like a shark. God has sovereign authority to make and do what he wills with creation. Now, thankfully, he is righteous, which means all that he does is not arbitrary. It's right and good. But since it belongs to him, it raises a legitimate question. What right do we have as a species and individually to do anything, really, with his creation? What right do you have to go into a forest and cut down a tree? That's life, and it belongs to him. What right do you have to clear land and, in the process, displace animals? What right do you have to put a yoke on another creature, whether it be human Or an animal? Everyone has to answer that. That's not just a Christian question. What right do we have over the lives of anything else? And you do have extremes. You have one extreme of people who say humans have no right at all. You know, you have to walk on eggshells to literally not hurt the tiniest microbe. How dare you? We are a virus upon earth. How do we have that right to to harm anything? That is an extreme In reality, almost no one holds that position, and we waste our time probably making that what we fight against. Another extreme, you have a godless philosophy, and yet one that is increasingly prevalent in the world. And this godless philosophy says that there actually is no right. There's simply power. There is not authority. There's just power. In other words, the strongest just gets to choose to coerce other things to do whatever you want with them. Humans happen to be stronger than other creatures, mentally if not physically. And so we can do whatever we want. Might makes right. That is our right. Unsurprisingly, people who adopt that mindset and then especially obtain power will be tyrannical. They will take that power and they'll live according to power rather than authority, rather than accountability. But it's not just The openly godless who tyrannize creation and tyrannize the creatures in it christians as well christians as well at times take the power that god vests with and they use it in sinful ways sometimes to great detriment to great devastation of communities of regions and they do it because they misunderstand or neglect the responsibility that we've been given This morning, we're going to see from the scripture that we have a right. We have been given authority to use creation towards good ends. That's our right to cut down trees if we do. That's our right to put a yoke on oxen if we do. God has given us authority over creation, for which he's going to hold us accountable. On the other hand, every single person who lives a day in this world will be called to account for the abuses that we have rendered upon creation as well. No one of us is innocent. And that's why this will drive us, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit drives you to Christ, first for pardon. You cannot atone through anything we might do in this natural world. Your best efforts to clean things up, change things, that does not reconcile you to God. It drives you to Christ, but then also to his promise, he will fulfill those things that were laid upon Adam in the beginning. He will have dominion. Creation will be brought into order. But then we'll see, as those who have been brought into union with him, you have been, in this sense, reauthorized. You still have a calling to live in a way that glorifies God towards the creation. And so these are the ideas, again, I recognize. It's a lot. and We can't spend very much time on any one of these. But we need to see what is God calling us to believe and to act in light of. Now, as we do that, there are going to be three main lessons. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Three main lessons and then some reflections at the very end. But start with this first lesson. should be very simple, at least the, the basic idea of it. And I say this especially to the children here. Understand, you are human beings, distinct from the animals, and to be human means that you have been Given authority by God to make good use of creation. You have been given authority by God, and that authority comes with a certain calling. Look with me at verse 28, focus on the verbs, notice the action words. Fill the earth and subdue it. Right off the bat, I can be confident that population of itself is not the problem. Fill the earth. That means that Christ will return before population is the fundamental issue. How we live, how we use things definitely makes a difference. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Dominion. In English, sometimes that word dominion has very negative connotations. We use it to describe cruelty, dominating people. However, that is not what this word is getting at here. If you look at how the word is used and just the circumstances, the context of which it's used in a pre-fallen world, it has to do with maintaining order. It's a neutral word in Hebrew. It just means to maintain order or to rule, to exercise authority. Likewise, the word subdue here, if you look at how it's used, for instance, in Jeremiah 34, Subdue means to put things to good or intentional use. To bring something into effective usefulness. That raises a question. Why does Adam even need to do this? I thought that the world was made perfect. People who are not familiar with Genesis, people who aren't familiar with it, often picture the pre-fallen creation as complete They picture it as a paradise extending one end to the other, the whole globe. That's how many people picture it. But, children, I want you to understand. I address the children because I know a lot of you adults are aware of this. That's not what the Bible teaches. God created human beings upright. And when he did so, he started by taking a world that was unformed. He could have made it like that, obviously, but it's for good purpose that he's doing what he does. He takes that which is disordered, a formless void, it says, and first he forms the world in such a state that is covered in water. Then he begins to draw up land, and then he chooses a portion of this land to place a well-watered place. That's literally what the Garden of Eden is talking about. Gar, Eden in Hebrew is getting at a well-watered place. So when we talk about our gardens, it's all really, even in our English, getting at water. And from there flow out the rivers that water the world. And where Adam is placed, there's an abundance of fruit and trees of all kinds. He has everything he needs. But just as God took that which was disordered and gradually ordered it in the creation account, so his image bearers, those called to reflect his image, were given a task. They were given a task to proceed out of the boundaries of that garden and to bring the world into greater order and bounty. Greater order and bounty. And it's reflected in Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And then the Lord says, go and fill the whole world. Describes a little bit later in Genesis that it had not yet been tilled. And so there's this calling, a cultural mandate upon human beings to go into the world, to apply themselves through industry And ingenuity to make the conditions of habitability in the garden of bounty, then extend to the earth. Essentially, the calling, the authority given to us, was to take what is in creation, use it to spread the godly community so that his image bearers are everywhere. Nobody was created just to, you know, feed themselves grapes and hang out forever. Your purpose is to expand the presence of the community of God in the world and those conditions of bounty and joy. And to do so using intelligence, craft, effort, hard work. That's the original calling put upon us. Now, you notice it also says in Genesis 2:15 that Adam is commanded to keep the garden. And we might picture that as, you know, kind like of keeping a rose bush. You got to trim it you got to, you know, bring out the the shears and make it grow better flowers. But I challenge you, if you look at how that word is used throughout the Bible, it's more like keeping in the sense of, say, a, a medieval castle has its keep. It's an ethical term. It means to guard from evil. And you find this word most often in the Old Testament. It's used in light of the priests guarding the temple from that which is unholy and impure, which means that at minimum, the calling of the human being was to carry out this work ethically. Not just any way. This mandate to subdue, exercise dominion, it cannot be confused. It is not a license to abuse creatures, whether human or animal. It is not a license to be wasteful. It's not a license to be tyrannical over anything or anyone. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. Proverbs 12, 10. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but even the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of beasts. And so you can invert that. People who don't show regard for the life of creatures are wicked, are walking in wicked practice. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus aided the disciples in capturing fish. Remember, throw the net over that side. And then supernaturally gathers them in. And then they pull them up, and guess what? The fish die and people eat them. Christ in John chapter 20, it's the first thing we meet him doing after the resurrection, he's having a fish breakfast and invites people to it. The Bible does not speak against the use of animals. For instance, it tells us to yoke oxen. But notice it also tells us not to muzzle them while they tread out the grain. When the Lord sends Jonah to Nineveh, he rebukes Jonah for not having compassion upon the people. But then the Lord adds, do you not realize that there are over 100,000 cattle here as well? The Lord remembered the cattle there too. Yes, it can be confusing in the fallen condition of the world that the Lord permits the degree of suffering that he does. And we'll come back to that a little bit in the next point. But we should never ourselves or allow others to take this mandate as a license to be cruel or to be wasteful. Rather, we are called to extend the boundaries and the bounty of God's habitable world. Now that brings us to the second main division here, the second lesson. If we have all received that mandate, and we all carry a portion of it, it's like carrying a, a big box, and we all have our hand on it in part, and some carry a heavier part than others because they have more authority and resources, but we all give an account. Then to be human is to render an account to the Lord for our use and abuse of this world. You will give an account, not for sin in the abstract, but for how you implemented God's creations to carry out, Evil desire or good desire. God will remember and reward. God will remember and judge. When I say abuse, I want to clarify a little bit. What does it mean to abuse God's creation, to abuse the authority that we have? On the one hand, we can talk about sins of commission, on the other hand, sins of omission. Sins of commission are the things where you are directly engaging in an act where you intend to sin. You take and manipulate something towards a wrong end. Let me just give you an example to make this very concrete. You have in the beginning, God gives trees. What a blessing. They bless us through their beauty. They provide us with food, the means of shelter, tools. And the very first sin that we encounter after the fall, what is it? Cain lays his hand to a part of one of God's beautiful trees and he beats his brother to death with it. Cain will not just give an account for murder. He will give an account for having murdered by taking and perverting something God made good and beautiful and turning it to a wicked end. That is a sin of commission with creation. But then there's also sins of omission, where we neglect To fulfill our duty, often by indifference or wastefulness, failing to improve on what God has given to us for the common good. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11, immediately after the prior portion of wisdom that I read, it says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. In other words, should you be surprised that a person who doesn't work hard goes without? And let that rest especially upon those who are younger. This is the time to invest in your vocation, in your education, in your skills. You are not just being lazy for yourself if you neglect the opportunity to gain the ability to do the most good that you can in the world. You're affecting others, and you are called to be an image bearer. One who represents the Lord. Of course, as we're going to see, none of us lives up to this. But that is not an excuse to neglect it, and we will be held accountable. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are heavy words. But that is Scripture. How can you say that you love the Lord and not seek to be like him in providing for those who have need? And starting with your own household, but think, had the fall not occurred, would we think of the world as divided nations? No, that comes as a byproduct of sin. We'd be one universal family. Adam's family would just get bigger and bigger. And the Lord calls us to look to concern for others as well. Now, I do want to acknowledge, I think, Most of you are well aware, abuses of this sort sometimes happen on the large scale and they occupy a lot of attention. Large scale abuses. For example, and I realize there are a lot of debates over which things are most harmful in the present day and there's a venue for that. I don't think the purpose of the pulpit is to raise divisive subjects about which particular things are most harmful. I think we can agree on the example I'm going to give. In the 1850s, the Belgian kingdom saw an opportunity, and by all historical, I don't know anybody who objects to this as a fact, they took over the Congo. They had no business being there. They took over about a million square miles of land, and the Congolese people were subjected to Belgian power. Why did they do that? They knew that there were all kinds of resources in that area, and particularly rubber. What else was going on at that time? The discovery of all the utility of rubber that previously was unknown. And whoever was first to market and could corner that market was going to have power. King Leopold II authorized all kinds of things. This is fully documented. For instance, the people of the Congo were told that if they did not meet daily quotas, not only would they be maimed first as a warning and then killed, but their children, as young as five years old, would be maimed or killed. It's not surprising that in a wicked world there are some abuses. You can't control absolutely every person. We're not talking like five or ten people experience this bad treatment. 50% of the population of the Congo died within 20 years. Where was the European world? at that time how is that allowed to happen we all do in some way have a hand on the box at minimum in our prayers and it's so easy to say i can't control those things and so i'm just not going to think about it because it makes me depressed christ was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and i think it's in part because he knew the darkness of this world and he cared And we are responsible even for the fact that we so often shut it out, myself as well. Those sorts of things, children, I I regret to tell you, are not confined to the past. Arguably simply because population is larger, more people today suffer under inhumane conditions of labor. More people today are watching their region of the world be utterly devastated so that people in another region can have a more habitable life. I'm not saying I know the answer. That's not the point. I'm saying we're accountable. Turn with me and look at Revelation chapter 6. And what we're going to see there is in one sense ominous for the unbeliever. On the other hand, to the believer, it's a great comfort. Because we often do feel overwhelmed that the people that are most in control of things are the least accountable. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 Here, John is having a vision of the end. And he sees the unfolding of judgments from God. And he says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And who can stand? I don't know if what John sees will be fulfilled in the most literal sense of the literal sky is going to roll up like a scroll. The basic message is that everything hidden will be revealed. There's no hiding. And that cry for the mountains to fall on us and crush us is the desire for annihilation. And what's being indicated is even the great and the powerful will be held to account forever. They don't get annihilation. What they wanted was separation from God, indicated by their lives, and they will get separation from God. The powerful be held account just as the lowest. People to the ideological left. People to the ideological left are often accused of making an idol out of the environment or of being guilty of virtue signaling. And certainly, many are guilty of that. And if we were speaking, if I was addressing a group who was largely to the ideological left, I would have different things to say. But I am a minister to you, not someone else. And I have to apply these texts where I am. The majority here are to the ideological right or center. And we have to remember that because other people are guilty of having an idolatry towards the environment, does not mean that we can be indifferent. The opposite of virtue signaling is not vice or indifference. The opposite of virtue signaling is virtue. Actually caring for the right reasons and doing the right thing, whether anyone sees it or not. And that means that we as Christians cannot adjust ourselves to a culture that increasingly shows itself distinct from this group by not caring or by acting indifferent towards the consequences of our actions, either in other regions or for future generations. I say that especially to the young, because as people get older, they generally become more nuanced, and they recognize, look, okay, Christ will return, but that doesn't mean he's returning within the next 30 years, and there's going to be some consequences for choices that we make, even if they aren't immediately in this community, but often they are. And then even if you say to yourself, well, I'm I'm not doing those big things that are shaping the world in obvious ways. I don't know how to do a better job. I want to lay it before you this way. Almost all of us have one of these. A device, a cell phone, some other piece of technology. And what is it made of? Minerals, largely. Minerals. We have nickel. We have lithium. We have silicon. And amazingly, God has ordered the world in such a way that the ingenuity of human beings can take all of those bits of dirt on the ground, form it into a configuration where we can talk to people on the other side of the world, get facts about all kinds of things, learn to know the Lord in ways that we never could have even conceived of 20 years ago. It's incredible. And who owns those minerals? Who has rights to them? The Lord And yet, almost everyone will be guilty of the same things, turning it into a device of lust, of greed, of idleness. Now, extend that out to everything you have your clothing, your car, your fridge. Everything is made of the Lord's material. Everything must be used for the Lord and will give an account for all of it. Do you not yet feel it? We're guilty. When the Lord returns and he sees the North Pacific gyre, if it's not solved in some way by then, this enormous, bigger-than-Texas area where we've polluted into it, I'm not saying that's going to be the death of the world. I'm saying does Christ, when he returns, look at that and say, yeah, they did pretty good. Does he look at your life and the way that you employ your television, your TV, uh, your anything that you have? And he say, yeah, they do rightly with it. We will give an account. Romans 8 says the whole creation is groaning under the futility to which it has been subjected by the corrupt. If this phone could talk, we'd hear everything groaning. That's what Romans 8 says. All creation and God hears it. Groaning under the weight of misuse. Ecclesiastes 12.13, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I realize that's heavy, but that's what takes this idea and makes it not just a charge, "Go, go and be environmental stewards. That's an implication, but it's not the primary thing. All the stewardship in the world cannot remove guilt. And so we have to set both our calling, our authority, and these abuses in light of the gospel. That's what I want to do third, the final of our main headings. Set these things in light of Christ's resurrection, in light of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. What does it mean that Christ was sent to atone on the cross? Jesus asked, Father, if there be any other way, and yet there was no other way. That means nothing you or all the nations together could do can bring about reconciliation with God. You may clean up the world. Maybe that'll happen. But unless you repent and know him, you're not going to be a part of it. Nor can all of our efforts remove the corruption from our own heart. Christ had to die. The promise of the gospel in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turns to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the only hope. That means that there is hope for somebody like King Leopold II. I don't know if he believed. I don't know if he repented. I don't know what was in his heart. But part of the scandal of the gospel is that even somebody guilty of enormous atrocities upon human beings can be forgiven. And the Lord calls you not to set yourself above others because I've done better, I've treated. He calls you to approach God through Christ and to believe I am reconciled for all of my sins and my abuse of these things. What does it mean that Jesus was raised and ascended to the right hand of God? It means that he came for more than just your forgiveness. Yet Christians often focus on that, like that's the end. Justification is a beautiful and necessary and important doctrine but it's a means to an end. It's a means to an end. And the end is the glorification of God as we become like Christ through the work of the Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus, just about to ascend to heaven, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Set said that in light of Genesis 1. There is a sense in which Christ has been authorized as the new humanity. And we who are united with him have the assurance he will succeed. You will live in Christ to see the world put to right use. It means that he will cause the whole world to be inhabited by the godly. Presently, I believe that his work is focused upon the filling verb. Remember in Genesis, we saw those three verbs. Fill, subdue, take dominion. Presently, it's focused Not exclusively, but focused on the filling aspect. That is, through the Great Commission, he's gathering to himself disciples. What good is a new world if there's not a new people? And disciples are people who are being conformed to the right use of all things through faith. And that means that we are part of that. He's bringing us into this inheritance. Romans 8, bear with me, hear what it says there. Again, setting this in light of Genesis 1. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are now children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 23, therefore, not only the creation, but we ourselves, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Understand what that means. One of the evidences of being brought into Christ is that you now have joined creation in groaning over the misuse of all things. You yearn for all things to be used in a way that glorifies God and leads to human fruitfulness, human flourishing in God's name. And that's one of the fruits that he's at work in you. Yes, you have a struggle because, as it says, we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Until glorification, it's not complete. Fallen Believers in this present age will not bring in the fullness of the kingdom. We await glorification so that we ourselves can use all things right. But that doesn't mean that we are not actively seeking it. It doesn't mean we're not seeking it. So now we come to conclude, I want to simply encourage you in light of these things, encourage you, exhort you. And I speak, I know people stand in, in Different, you know, you're weighted differently in how you think through these things. To some of you, I wish to say, do not despair over the state of the world. Dig in. God is sovereign. We know the end. I am certain that, on the one hand, I'm, I'm not trying to be cute. This is not a joke. I am very confident climate change will not end humanity. How am I confident? Unless by climate change we mean At Christ's coming, describes the heavens being consumed in fire. We know how it ends. Don't despair. You will see things put in their right state. You will see an end to cruelty done to animals, much more to people who are worth far more than sparrows. On the other hand, don't slip into a sense of indifference. We don't know when Christ will return. Actions have real consequences. You, in many ways, feel paralyzed, I'm sure, because I do as well, with respect to huge national things. But you have an effect on your community. And I want to encourage you, seeking to use all things well and responsibly isn't wasted effort. People look at that. God uses that. First, he's pleased with it, and you'll give an account to him. He will reward it. Second, God uses that to lend a credibility to the faith that he draws the elect to the faith through. Practically speaking, some people have been put off from the faith by the bad stewardship of professing Christians. Third, it renders actual benefits to the world. It makes the world more livable. So none of this is wasted. I leave you with this verse, 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of the grace that God has given in its various forms. Whether that gift is spiritual, whether that gift is the job you have, the resources you have, may we use it for Christ's name. To be human is to bear that authority. We will give an account. Let's ask him to show mercy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the high calling you've given to us. We confess, Lord, that every day we fall short Oh, God, we praise you that in Jesus Christ, you will succeed. You have appointed a human being who absolutely will fill the world with the godly, subdue all things, have dominion in such a way that the lion shall lie down with the lamb, and all will bring praise to you. We grieve with you, Lord, for the tremendous abuses that take place in the world especially for our fellow image bearers who suffer extraordinarily difficult lives. We ask that you would help us to pray and to know how, in our own ways, to bring about some glimpse of your coming kingdom. Perhaps even here you will raise up those who will occupy seats of power and influence. But We put our faith not in men. We put our faith in Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.